that so early is from a small festival saying we just have no money so I'm being up front about it and I don't know but in any other um, uh, realm of work if you're offered something you weren't paid enough money you'd either ask for more or you'd turn it down you wouldn't accept it and then complain about it continually yeah. which is kind of I, I feel that's what authors continually yeah. do and I can understand where that comes from is that they're desperate to promote their work and the which opportunity is to promote their work less and less was so good because I thought it, it, like I said it wasn't it, it just went beyond the yeah. Yeah, Alex's piece also focused binary. Let's just talk about Alex's piece. Alex, your piece focused like brilliantly. Is this the whole. Is this the yeah, other piece of battle? Tune yeah. in, everyone. Title, is it? Yeah, My but, piece, but brilliant. it's focused on the. Yeah. Uh, the idea like that it. the idea that I think the real change, I think you touched on this, Alex, is that 10 years ago, say, book festivals were largely. There weren't loads of them, and they were run, as you said, John, by people who really loved books because there wasn't a load of money in it. and but I, I am aware that there are more book festivals, many of which are, of course, run by people who love books, but also because they, people begin to think, our town needs a book festival. A book festival is the sort of thing our town would, would look good with. So those are the ones where, you don't, where you're not reaching out to an audience that you know are bookish or numerous, where you're taking a bit of a pump that, that people will come, and sometimes they just don't come. No, I mean, I, I have to say, you know, 350 plus looks a little bit like peak lit fest to me. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't think there's such a thing. Really? Yeah, I think, I think every town should have one. What, by statute? By statute, by law. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's something slightly snobbish about this kind of like... The attitude that there's 350s enough, or we're going to have too many of them, or that there's, they're organised by people that don't love books. Mm. Well, these, these new people are doing it, and they're not mm. as good as the old ones. I, I suppose I don't, I don't mean, I don't mean to be... I, I mean, <laughs> all I'm saying is that there are the, the you know, getting programmes that will motivate people to come. And that's a challenge, that's all. Yes, yeah, exactly. You know. And one of the issues... You know, there are undeniable issues about the financing of... Literary festivals. Yep. And every time you really get close to the heart of the matter, people sort of say, I mean, they kind of back away from it. So if you say to someone, but you'll only get 40 people and they only want to pay seven quid, so how's that going to work? They'll say, well, you know, the festivals should promote it better. And you think that's not an answer. That's <laughs> yeah. true. There you go. With thunder in the <laughs> the future of. Yeah. I like. I tell you what. I, would, I think. I, I, I feel that Germany has got those literature houses. Those that they have. It's just so. Magnificent. What are they? Explain. So you have a, like a place in town where, and it's essentially a place where you put on literary events, and they're there, and they're fully stocked because it's Germany. They're really well organised and they're fully staffed, and you, they get fantastic. You haven't. You, you probably haven't done a book tour in Germany. Yes, there is a but, book keller in every <laughs> book house. Book house, yeah. I think, is what yeah. they're called. Um, but you go and you read for an hour and ten, you know an hour and a half, and then everybody stops and has a drink, and then you go back and read again for another hour. It's like you can't it's like two sets of, unbelievable. Yeah. One author, you know, it's like mm. this is insane. I mean, mm. but they they're, they're just they're very 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 well. I mean, it's sort of well organised in the way you would expect, but. Also, they, they're serious. I mean, I love the fact that they're so serious about, about literature to have it. The idea of having a, you know, the idea that Banbury would have a literature venue. You know, you can barely manage a library these days. I was talking to a festival organiser last night and he was going through all the events he'd done over the last month. And he was talking about one event where two thirds of the audience left before the end. Oh, God. 
And he said, as, it, as they started walking out and they carried on carrying on walking out, you could see the authors just being crushed. <laughs> being crushed. I went to a festival in Wales and I realised that on the bill was Attila the stockbroker, who I thought had possibly ceased producing. Round, round about this exactly. Period. They would bring the spirit of the 80s. <laughs> Decades ago. It was real spirit of the 80s stuff. And I thought, I have to go. And I went and sat and saw him in this tent, and there he was doing his ranty poetry. And then basically pretty much the only other event started off and it was Charlotte Church in the next marquee, rather bigger marquee. And obviously three quarters of people just got up and left. So then obviously I felt completely on the bound to buy this book at the end or several of his books. And I said, I'm so, I haven't seen you since I was in my 20s. I'm so excited. And he said, well, I've been been here all the time. In this rather kind of dour voice, I felt terrible. And to undermine undermine my previous point, (laughs) Attila the Stockbroker actually organises a literary festival. (laughs) (laughs) No. That's becoming atomised to the point. I take everything We all have our own literary festival soon. (laughs) He's a ranting poet. We're trying to do an online one, aren't we? Unbound. There's a few authors of good stuff. Very good on hotel costs. Yeah. yeah. Well, very good on all costs. <laughs> yeah. Just a, enough for a glass of wine at home, sitting in front of the... I suppose it's a sort of... Yeah. I mean, it's... I don't know. Would you go? I don't know. It's interesting. Well, where would you go? Well, it's yeah, more importantly. on at the same... But, you know, look at the programme. Oh, I'll, I'll check back in for that. Might be fun. I am very intrigued, though, by this. I mean, people have talked about the celebrification of, of literary festivals and, and, you know, the non literization But I think much of it comes down to food again. Yeah. It's always the food stalls that you just see the massive queues for. And the other day, I had to go and do an interview at the South Bank and I was getting dropped off in a car. And I was it's all street food down there. I, I was looking for the like writers and artists entrance and I couldn't, between a kind of churro stall and a burrito <laughs> stall and a hog roast, I thought this is ridiculous, it took me about 20 minutes to go through the sandwich queue. I, I, <laughs> I saw Mark Ellen last year at Port Elliot take to the stage and greet the crowd by saying, oh it's good Port Elliot isn't it? Still, ten pounds for a lobster roll. <laughs> I, know, I, was there, I, was, I was there when he bought that lobster roll. He was, he was in shock. He could talk about nothing else. But... I'm so going to reveal my terrible metropolitan. I think that's quite reasonable for a lobster roll. <laughs> it's generous on the lobster. Um, shall we kick off? Yes, why not? Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Once more, we're gathered around the table in the Unbound offices. Unbound, of course, is the website where authors and readers come together to make great books. I'm John Mitchinson, publisher of Unbound. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year Reading Dangerously. And joining us today is writer, broadcaster and journalist Alex Clark, former of The Observer. Alex writes and talks about books for The Observer, The Garden, The TLS, and also has, in a previous life, edited Granta. Hello, Alex. Hello. And the book Alex has chosen to uh, talk to us about this week is Letters from a Faint-Hearted Feminist by Jill Tweedy, first published in 1982. Yep, yeah, 1982. Um, based on uh, a weekly column in... In The Guardian, in the where Guardian. she was for many years women's editor. Well, obviously, we'll, we'll come into it in more detail, but one of the weird things I found is it felt incredibly familiar. And I, I did, yes. re- I did re- I remember reading the column, but it was the sort of the years vanished quite rapidly in, 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 in uh, it's survived very well hasn't really, it really 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 I mean we should explain yeah. what it is uh, which is basically letters written from Martha who is uh, a sort of um, slightly stuck at home housewife <laughs> uh, with two fairly grown up children 
and a baby by her second husband. And she writes letters to uh, her feminist pal, Mary, who does things like form women against women against... No. (laughs) (laughs) Who does things like form groups called women against everything against women, or (laughs) wow, as as they struggle to pronounce it. Um, we'll come on to it in a moment, but uh, as is traditional... I, I, yeah, as is traditional, Andy, I'm going to ask you what you've been reading. I have been reading. Now, we're going to come on to the book that you've been reading, uh, John, in a minute, and I'm making After a plea. You. No, listen, no, I've got to make a plea to listeners, right? The book that John is going to talk about, I've also read, and I suspect is going to uh, blow this book out of the water, but I just want to give this book a fair uh, hearing first. It's a novel that was written in 1965 by Emmerich Pressburger. It's called The Glass Pearls. And I never and knew he'd written a novel. That's Emmerich Pressburger was the partner of Michael Powell in The Archers, the In the non-sexual. Yes. Uh, he made the films A Matter of Life and Death. Uh, Peeping Tom. Peeping Tom. Yeah, well, that's Life of his Own. Colonel Blimp, Canterbury Tale, I Know Where I'm Going. Uh, some of the greatest British films that have ever been made. 49th Parallel. Yeah, 49th Parallel. One of our aircraft is missing. Have you yeah. seen that? Yeah. That one. Have you seen uh, um, the one that is set on Fula, the island of Fula? I know where I'm going. Yeah. No, no, Edge no. of the World. Edge of the World. That's right. Yeah, Amazing film. So, um, Faber Fines uh, reissued this novel, The Glass Pearls, last year. It's the first time that it's been available for 50 years. It's Emmerich Pressburger's second novel. His first novel had been um, very successful. This novel came out and it absolutely died a terrible death. And there's a really good introduction by Kevin MacDonald, who is Pressburg's grandson, pointing out that the book received only one review wow. in the TLS. I'm going to read you a little bit of that review in a minute. But what this book is, it's absolute, I, can, I will recommend this book if, you have, if you've never seen a Powell and Pressburger film or if you love Powell and Pressburger. It's a thriller, and it is about a former doctor from a Nazi concentration camp who has been on the run for 20 years and is living in London as a piano tuner. And it's about the net closing in on him, or rather, he believes the net is closing in on him, and he begins an affair with quite a gullible young woman and persuades her to go with him to Paris... And as the book goes on, you are invited to see things from the point of view of the man around whom the net is closing. Now, in that respect, it's very, very like a Powell and Pressburger film. The sympathetic German or Peeping Tom, which encourages you to see things from the point of view of a a murderer. The thing that's extraordinary about this book is, of course, that Pressburger was Jewish and his relatives died in the concentration camps. It is the most fantastically even-handed attempt to say that even Nazi war criminals are humans, and all humans have the capacity to be Nazi war criminals. And it keeps you guessing right to the very, very last line of the book. I know people say that about thrillers, don't they? It keeps you turning back. This genuinely, you only, on the final page of the book begin to understand the actual horror of what you've been reading. And it makes you recalibrate everything you've read up to that point. It has quite a few things in, in common, I think, with Brighton Rock by Graham Greene, that you're seeing 
innocence knowingly corrupted by someone who doesn't know how else to to behave or to act. And did he write his fiction in English? Yes. Amazing. And then this is, this is the one review that it got. This is it in full, because it was very short. Emmerich Pressburger is perhaps better known as a filmmaker, remember the red shoes, than as a novelist. For someone who has made 16 films, he seems to have remarkably little feeling for pace, character, dialogue, or for even keeping his audience awake. The central figure of The Glass Pearls is Brown, an innocent German refugee turned piano tuner, or so we think, for all of six pages. <laughs> Jesus. By page seven, it's a proper 1965 snark here from the TLS, right? By page seven, his secret is revealed. He is, in fact, a wanted Nazi war criminal, the notorious Dr. Otto Reitzmuller, brilliant brain surgeon and violinist. At this point, one feels the book could profitably end. But no. <laughs> The narrative lurches on for another 200 pages as Brown Reitmuller becomes tediously involved with Helen. That she is boring and stupid would be of little importance had not Mr Pressburger chosen her to express one of the book's occasional anti-Nazi arguments. It is the mo- that is the most stunning failure to understand a book since last weekend. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's such a fantastic, brave... And brilliant book that I don't think could be written now, actually. I think there would be too much need to uh, equivocate or, or box clever. Interesting. Was it, yeah. Do you think it's filmable? Yes. His previous novel was, in fact, filmed, and, and uh, although it escapes me now what the, what the name of the film is, but was a hit. And this has clearly been written to be filmed. You can right. see it. But equally, you, we know that... This comes five years after Peeping Tom, Michael Powell's film, which, with which it has great similarities. Peeping Tom finished Michael Powell's career, right. effectively, yeah. because people didn't understand it. I guess so right. for his partner to do the same thing again in a different context seems to me incredibly brave and brilliant and a wonderful act of solidarity as well. And did Powell and Pressburger work again after... Yes, fitfully. They made a film called The Boy Who Turned Yellow for the Children's Film Foundation in the early 1970s. And Powell made other films a- in the 60s. Age of Consent with Helen Mirren Age of Consent, that's right. And Age of Consent is, a, is, you know, problematic, but it's still pretty good. Yeah. So that's my great enthusiasm for that book. I love that book. I'm, it just people seem not to know about it, even people who are big Powell and Big Powell and Pressburg. No, I, I, me, me too, absolutely, completely. Um, yeah. I like to say that that review came from the days before TLS reviews were signed. Yes, so we don't know who, we wrote, don't know it. who wrote it. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of the braggadocio yeah. of the mild mannered man behind the typewriter. Quite. And, uh, and well, they got their wish because he never wrote another novel. Oh, no. and, and and his grandson says it was largely because of that review. Oh no! So yeah, good job. Tread softly. Um, uh, and John, what have you been reading? Um, I've been reading. Lives. I've been reading very, with, with, I mean, real pleasure. I have to say, <laughs> a life discarded by Alexander Masters. Uh, the subtitle kind of gives you the, the, the pitch for the book. 148 diaries found in a skip. And Alexander Masters is the author of Stuart: A Life Backwards, which was one of my, I think, is one of my sort of probably easily in my top ten favourite non-fiction books of all time. It's, I think, a brilliant bit of work uh, it's a, the life of a homeless man violent you had a violent life it's, it's also a murder story which is an extra, extraordinary Stuart reads the first the first draft of Alexander's book and says it's bollocks boring 
And he said, why don't you make it? I was thinking more of a, you know, you're going to tell the story of my life. I was thinking more of a sort of Tom Clancy novel. He said, why don't you make it a murder story that, and do, do it backwards so that you end the book with the murder of the child aged 12 between the hours of 4 and 5 p.m. on a... And that was a mm. pretty ast- astonishing, arresting start. And, of course, really difficult to write the story of a book. So, and so I talked to Alexander Masters in Hay... And he said it, writing it was a bit like tacking. You'd have to go to the back to the past and then come back to the future to make mm-hmm. it work. But it's, as well as being brilliantly, um, technically uh, a, a great book, Stuart, it's also the most honest, complex portrayal of a, of a person whose life most of us would think, you know, homeless people, the people you kind of try not to, 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 to meet the eyes of in the street. It's, it's, it's on so many levels, I think, a, a, a brilliant. And I think everybody ought to be, whoever works with, you know, in, in, in uh, social services ought to be issued with a copy because it's capacity for, for fostering empathy, but also for understanding without patronising at all. Um, and one of the heroines of the book is Stuart's mum. Um, and that sort of brings you to, to life discarded because Alexander Masters is sort of, he's kind of mapping out a career, telling strange he calls himself, somewhere in the book, Life Discarded, he says, when I asked myself what I am, he said, I'm a, I'm a biographer first, mm. uh, a, a person second, and a, a physicist hardly at all. He trained in physics. Mm. But one of the things I, I think of, you can sort of feel that scientific training in all, all of his books. There was a, the middle book that I have to confess, I'd not even heard of it. It, it mm. didn't, was Simon, the, geni- uh, uh, the genius in my basement which um, I've subsequently bought and started. And he's just, he's telling the stories, I guess, that don't often get told. And this is the most extreme, in a way. A friend of his, Dido Davis, who, who um, was responsible for a lot of the early editorial work on Stuart, found in a skip. Actually, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't her. She actually got them out of the skip. But it was an academic friend yeah. of his who found... 148 diaries written in this incredibly small hand uh, in a skip. Maybe five million words were. And the book is his attempt... Some, some in a box, as yeah. he notes, the size of a human head. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he gets given them. When Dido gets ill and he gets given the box, to sort of the, the, the diaries to look. And he, he kind of stalks them for quite a long time. And then in the end starts to decide that a sort of a distraction from Dido's illness, she's, she's dying of, um, of uh, pancreatic cancer, he decides he's going to try and figure out who wrote the book. And so a little bit of it here is a person can write five million words about itself and forget you to tell you its name or its sex. People don't include obvious identifiers in diaries, things such as what they're called or where their home is. They're simply I who lives and then dies and gets dumped in a skip. Mm. So the book, in a way, is another, it's another sort of mystery. It's trying to find out who this person, this I, is. And we, Andy and I, have decided that we're not going to give the game away. We mustn't tell, we mustn't say because anything. Because it, it's, it's so beautifully um, constructed. So John, John was, was, I saw John last week talking about his interview with Alexander Masters and had been raving about the book anyway. And I had a copy of the book, and I thought, oh, well, okay, I'll, I'll put, read the first couple of pages and give it a look. And I had to put it down and walk away from it for a few days <laughs> while I read letters from faint-hearted feminists. I, I think it, this, I just think this is a magnificent book. Clearly about the person concerned, yeah. but a book about the compromises and contradictions of trying to pin 
a life to a page, yeah. either as a diarist or as a I biographer. Mean, and it made me it made me cry. Yeah, I the think last it, I, few pages I made think me cry. I think yeah, it's really it's amazing. It's 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 really really remarkable. And again, uh, you know, to give you a little idea of the flavour of it. One of the things that's, that's, um, that he does so brilliantly is he kind of he's he, well one he doesn't. What most of us would do if it was a bit of academic research, his wife's an ac- academic, and said, you know, why don't you, why don't you put them all in chronological order, but he and, and read them that way. But he can't quite do that. He sort of dips in and reads a few, and then dips out again. I mean, it's worth saying that this, these diaries run from the late fifties until they were found, I think, in two thousand and eleven. So it's a it's a whole life recorded. I mean, remark- it's a remarkable thing, but it's also remarkable. So he doesn't do that. And when, and again, you'll find out what, what happens when he does do it. But as part of him, you can feel, doesn't really want to, um, he doesn't want to know. He sort of, mm-hmm. he's kind of, it's like reading a novel where he doesn't want it to end too quickly. So he goes, for example, and uh, talks to a, a private detective who was a, 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 actually a, a former policeman, one of the policemen who arrested Stuart and talks about how private detectives find out identity, and then is sort of quite resistant to use the, the techniques that he, 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 he's been... He goes to see a graphologist, and there's a hilarious thing where the graphologist suddenly says, you know, well, I think this person is, you know, is, goes through a psychological... And he's saying, well, and you know all this from the handwriting. She says, no, read the... <laughs> yeah. I know it's what she's saying about her life. She says, I wouldn't... I wouldn't want to be in, woof, she said, I wouldn't want to be in the yeah, same room as this person. <laughs> yeah. and, and Masters says very drolly, that's all right, I've written a book about a man called Stuart and not a lot of people want to be in the room with him either. Well, I mean, I think I asked him, I said, you know, it's as Donnays go, this is a pretty remarkable one. I know, he, you know, to some extent, uh, Stuart was a, was a chance meeting and... Um, Simon, the book, he just happened to have a, an autistic mathematician who lived in the basement. I mean, in a way, he was fortunate to find such a remarkable... I mean, you know, not everybody's diary, I guess, would have been quite... would have yielded quite so... And he was really worried at first. He was really worried that it was going to be, you know, some really famous person, like a sort of professor, because it was Cambridge where the diaries were found. And I think I can say that that isn't the case. But... The, the fact is, what he's what, because he, as you say, the kind of wandering around the subject, his rumination on it is fun. I mean, I did a, earlier that day, I'd done another biographer, and you realise that most biography is sort of beginning, middle, and end. But he walks backwards into this in such an elegant way. Mm. And as I say, his, his, his ambiguity about the story he's trying to tell means that you, it actually works. It is. <laughs> Going back to the old cliche, it's a page turner. Really, you have to you and, have and to read it, it and you so... want to find out what happens. Can I ask whether you can be concretely convinced that he hasn't fabricated the whole thing? No, and that's that's why and that's another thing I like about it. I also think that well, Alex, and let, Alex, the thing about it that's so brilliant is I think there is a brilliant, <coughs> clever. Um, uh, process going on with how information is communicated to the reader, oh, yeah. which may or may not be in the same time frame as it happened to him, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter. Mm. You know, it's it's creating a an authentic fake. 
to make you feel you're going through that same process. I think that's true. Having said that, having you know met him, and he was very interesting about creative writing courses. Just thinks we should all be closed down, and you know, writers should be sent into kind of sent out into the community and to talk to actual human beings. But when they were when they were trying to make the film, they finally did make a film with um, with Benedict Cumberpatch and of Stewart. Oh yeah, um, right. you know this, there was a scene of Stuart being uh, raped in the book. And the director in the script said, you know, want, want to linger on this for as long as possible. And Alexander had objected to it and said, well, you know, do you want to come and meet? I want, you know, before I can approve this, I want you to come and meet Ju- Judith, the mum, oh, Stuart's mum, and look her in the eyes and tell her why you think this is so important. And the guy just said, well, he said, I really don't like to meet you know, the subjects of people I'm making films about. I find it interferes with my aesthetic judgment. But he is absolutely <laughs> Alexander Masters is exact, the exact opposite I mean I think he, he's a high risk game so I, I, while I think Andy's absolutely right you can't be sure totally that he hasn't made it up I think it's probably unlikely I think I'm, what I felt about it was not that you know as in literally has he kind of made this yeah. up but was it possible to feel that element of fabrication which mm-hmm. makes it perhaps a more interesting artwork if you see what yeah. I mean and what did you th- did you think it Sorry, have you read it? No, no, I haven't. I'm, yeah, I'm kind of asking you because yeah, yeah, no, it's just you know documentary that would seem less interesting. I, I, I have a, I love books, and I probably have a weakness for books that at some moment turn to the reader and say, "Come on, this is a book," mm-hmm. and um, that's what this book does without ever backing off from its subject or its commitment to its subject. That's why I loved it because he manages to weave that into the actual texture of the biography itself, which seems to me so, you know, so clever and funny too. It's yeah, it's really funny. funny. I, 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 again, you know, in a year of some really great books, I have to be hard mm-hmm. to get past that one. Um, but we should move on. We'll be back in just a sec. Jill Tweedy. Jill Tweedy. Alex, <laughs> Where, when did you first read? Do you remember when you first read these columns or this book? I didn't read the columns because I don't think we took The Guardian at home. <laughs> um, I think that was not what happened. And I was too, too young, really, to be reading it myself. I started reading it at university in the late 80s. Um, but it actually comes down to a kind of funny publishing thing, I think. This is my memory. Uh, that I bought lots of books that had the Picador colophon on them because God they, bless Picador and Sonny Mater. They just had that yeah. that you should read this. Oh no, that's really true. At that point. That's really true. That's it's worth reminding uh, our younger listener that um, <laughs> that uh, when we were growing up, uh, paper, paperbacks were called paperbacks were called two things. They were called peng- where are your penguins? People would come in and say, and where are your picadors? Love your picadors, you might picador, say to someone yeah. you know. The picador spinner was, uh, yeah. until we banned spinners in Waterstones, the picador spinner was an absolute, <laughs> absolute <laughs> staple. Why did, what, because in case they took someone's eye out? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be honest, they were, they were, they, they were, they were, uh, we're getting sidetracked, but they, they were dust magnets, that was one problem. But also, it was this idea that they were somehow, it was, it was sort of unfair. I don't know. There was some strange. What can you remember? We had a. I don't know. It was just. And, it was, and it's by that that the, that the country was culturally enfeebled <laughs> because, because of dust. Men didn't want to do dusting. Yes, there you go. How neatly. But, oh, how neatly back. <laughs> but Picador were an absolute. They were the byword for literary fiction. For, for right? really yeah. good 
I mean, I, and also some very cool non-fiction as well. You yeah. know, I always think of Michael Hur as the, the ect Picador title dispatches. And, um, but, you know, if you wanted to read Umberto Eco, that was, and there was... There was just so many great books on that list. So I kind of gravitated towards them, but I also think when I look back to my um, reading then... I was sort of reading things you found in the library by novelists you hadn't heard of, like Muriel Spark, mm-hmm. um, at that point. But I was also reading stuff like Greenham Common yeah. books, books about the Middle East, anything that felt at all feministy, and this was one of those things. Mm. But it's funny. <laughs> oh, it's very funny. I mean, I mean, it's so funny. I'd forgotten how funny, uh, what a funny writer she was. Did she write... Did you write novels? Did you, I'm going to. Well, I shall do the biographical thing, and then we should do the bl- we should do the blurb as well. So, Jill Tweedy was born in May 1936, and she died in November 1993. So, she would have been 80 this year. Um, she was a writer, broadcaster, and feminist. But more importantly, she grew up in Croydon. <laughs> Someone who'd grown up in Croydon, I thought that was That was the a thing, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, she wrote about feminist issues for The Guardian from 1969 to 1988, published two volumes of letters from a faint-hearted feminist, an autobiography called Eating Children, uh, and um, novels called Internal Affairs and Bliss. And That's right. I've got the... I'm going to read you the blurb from Bliss. I'm just going to show uh, the table, the cover of Bliss. I remember it well. <laughs> There's a sort of very much a, a subverted lace yes. uh, by Shirley Conrad thing yeah. going on there, isn't there? Absolutely, there is. Was that in between the in between uh, Shirley Conrad and Julie Birchall's ambition? Sort of, yes. Eighty-eight. Ambition was eighty. Beautiful Lady Claire Lafontaine marries the president of Ventura for his money and enters the luxurious and breathtaking word of bliss. But Claire's tropical paradise rapidly becomes a glittering cage when she discovers the dark and hostile side of Raoul's sexuality. <laughs> and her despairing slide into drugs and promiscuity is only arrested when she is brought face to face with the exploitation and suffering of Venturan women. Huge, vital and passionately written. Cosmopolitan. Do you think it's one of those novels that you would put in the Voldemort bills to pay? <laughs> I, it sounds to me a little bit like... the. the same thing as Birchall is just kind of smart. For, oh, Shirley Conrad. I mean, it was there was a yeah. bit of a there was a bit of a thing for for smart, intelligent, kind of sophisticated uh, women to write blockbusters. So she wrote book, So she's really publishes books, a series of books in the nineteen eighties. <coughs> I think that's right. And um, so she died in nineteen ninety three. I'm just going to read a bit from. Um, an obituary by Sally Belfridge that was published in The Independent because actually I, I felt, uh, reading the book, I found this really interesting to then read about Jill Tweedy's background. Mm. So I'm just going to read this a, a, a little. Jill Tweedy had finer qualities and worse luck than seemed possible to coexist in one person. While the qualities, her talent, emotional honesty, wit, generosity, warmth, beauty and intensity of principle were evident not only to her friends but to more than a generation of women who relied on her newspaper column spanning 22 years. The bad luck was obscured by her desire more to explore what she had in common with her readers than to inflict her exotic sufferings upon them. But in her last book, Eating Children, published this year, she revealed with extraordinary passion the story of the cleft, 
her name for her father, quote, as unacquainted with love as a Scots pine, (laughs) (laughs) who who undermined her at every step, her early exceptional promise as a ballet dancer who then grew too tall, and her first marriage in Canada to an exiled Hungarian count, who, while taking her on mad jaunts through the European castle with his relatives, was torturing her with his insane, possessive love. Her sufferings never resulted in self-pity. In fact, she never even referred to them, publicly or privately. I began to feel that my luck was so bad, she said once, that I became ashamed of it and wouldn't tell anyone about the things that had happened. Instead, she worked incredibly hard to overcome luck's effects, and her pain helped her enter into any pain. In her column for The Guardian, she explored the tragedies of other women or the simple, ordinary miseries of all women marooned at home with small children, demanding men, and the general dreadfulness of domesticity. Her startling, hilarious insights into the banal seemed to her readers like miracles. I think that's rather wonderful. That's great. And I think knowing that, when you... you're right. The Letters from a Faint-Hearted Feminist is, is really funny and stands up as really funny. But the commitment to it and the emotional core of it, I think, is really, really important as well, isn't it? Well, it's the faint-hearted bit that's, that's the sort of key to it because um, you get this impression of somebody who is in one way kind of trammelled in their domestic life but, of course, likes it also and is very cleverly satirising their uh, friend Mary's more sort of outlandish attempts to, to promote equality. Well, it's not even really equality between the sexes, actually. I think it's the sort of um, dominance of women. This is what Liz Forgan says. She said, Letters from a Faint-Hearted Feminist a series of columns in which issues of central feminist ideology were put through the same critical ringer as the unthinking patriarchal orthodoxies that had been in her earlier columns. Could, you, could not you wear high heels with a boiler suit? <laughs> were beautiful clothes a gorgeous prison or a legitimate choice for independent women? Was monogamy inevitably a, a road to servitude? But with jokes. The thing is, I think that there's an awful lot of writing that you could put in this category... Subsequently, I mean, it's in a sense fairly ascendant at the minute. Uh, and I don't want to be one of those people who says, but it's all a bit shouty. But this is infinitely more subtle, isn't it? Yeah. There's a great deal more of humorous subtlety. And it, it's, it's so subtle. And so, that, and even, the, even though the men are obviously a kind of a galere of sort of selfish, uh, absurd, I mean, she doesn't ever. It, it's, it's not angry satire. It's, it's, you know, there's a sort of. There's a sort of sense all the way through that she, that Martha, who's, who's writing the letters, is obviously her life is, you know, she has to put up with a massive amount of crap, but she does do it with a certain amount of good, good grace. I mean, she does end up doing things for Josh that you think, what, why, why are you really doing that? You should just leave him to, to, to stew in his but All those brilliant things about the, the, him and his boss, you know, the woman, there's a, a terrible scene where she has them over for tea and she's just given them home, she's just given them kind of supermarket pizzas and she says, oh, I do love home cooking. <laughs> sort of patronised to it. I just, I, the, and the, the structure of the letters is brilliant too because I'm, was thinking, would this have worked as well as a novel? And I don't think it would. I no, think some... I think the fact that she is in a fixed point, yeah. but generally when she's writing to Mary, Mary is off on some extraordinary um, escapade. So when the, when it opens, she's had just had the sort of, Martha's just had the kind of traditional dreadful Christmas at home, <laughs> ministering to everyone. So she's got a terrible mother. She's got a terrible yes, mother. mother is fantastic. Uh, the mother, she, I love that mother comes to stay and, and buys clothes and then <laughs> stay the whole week so she can return 
return them within the, the kind of the return period of the storm. She um, she wants Janet Rager for Christmas, but she gets a spare rib diary, and uh, you know it's evidently supposed to be a thoughtful present, but it's not quite how she feels about it. Meanwhile, Mary's gone to pick it. Um, the nativity scenes in Rome, and it just sort of continues like that. She's never, she's never far from adventure. And there is Martha stuck at home. And actually, her husband's not so terrible. Um, he may or may not be embarking on an affair with the dreadful Irene. What the one thing I liked about this, and I think it is not coincidental, is that Irene, who is, it's, it's just some, some kind of financial job that yeah. they work in, isn't it? And she is Josh's boss, her husband Josh's boss uh, and she has hair blow dried and hair sprayed into absolute permit, hel- permanent helmetry and she wears a nice little Jean Muir number but by the end of the book um, she is off to become an MP that's what she wants to do and it, it just struck me that it, it's a parallel with another writer from around this time where somebody does exactly the same thing and that's Sue Townsend in yes, later episodes of, um, of Adrian Mole's life Pandora goes off to become an MP and of course yeah. this being you know the high watermark of Thatcherism there is an idea that women can do this and are going to do this do you want to find a little bit to read to I give do. us one. all a, um, a flavour of how these go I have one right here shall I? Dear Mary, of course I understand your objection to rapists and rippers and robbers, in a word, men, but you have to understand my position. I have them in the house, Mary, three of them. Well, you can't quite count the baby yet, though he's already very demanding, wanting to be fed at inopportune moments and forcing me to drop everything and retire to the bedroom. Jane and Ben, the two older children, had the nerve the other night to, the other night to ask why I couldn't breastfeed him naturally. I told them I was under the impression that I was doing just that, and they said they meant in front of them. I was shocked. <laughs> Certainly not. I said in a Lady Bracknell voice. Then they both delivered a diatribe about Mother Nature that included references to dogs and puppies, the women of Africa and the women in Parliament who did it in front of MPs. As coolly as I could, I pointed out to the kids that even women in Parliament tuck themselves under the woolsack or somewhere, and pretty watercolours of breastfeeding women with rosy toddlers gathered round their knees were one thing, but doing it with two great Yorks like them, gaping down their mother's <laughs> hitherto unrevealed assets, and the possibility of Flanagan and co joining the merry throng was quite another. Besides, it could wreak havoc with Ben's Oedipal dilemma, if he had one, which I doubt. (laughs) And if, Mary, you are thinking of taking their side, I would remind you that the only helpless member of God's creation you've ever fed in public was that baby guinea pig of yours, and it died. (laughs) You know, this really reminded me of... I talked about this book a few months ago on Backlisted. Um, This really reminded me of Diary of a Provincial Lady Mm. by um, Delafield, which is, of course, written for a feminist magazine uh, as a series of columns and then brought together as one of a series of volumes. I think there are five volumes in the Provincial Age series. But it has that same thing, that it has a fascinating kind of brilliant comic rhythm drawing on whatever the issues for women were at the time it was written. I think we should also say about Letters from a Faint Hunted Feminist, it's very 80s. Oh, yes. I mean, well, the the bit I just read, you know, a discussion about breastfeeding, the idea that she is a very intelligent woman who would... would, But I also mean, because they were written as newspaper columns, you Mm. know, there are specific references to... The birth of the STP, it's extraordinary, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, the, the, the Princess Diana. Yeah. Yes. Oh, she gets. Which is fantastic. Every. I, I thought when I was reading that every what a what a what very heaven to be alive in 1981 when the royal wedding was happening. If you were, if you were a, a, a comic writer, so much good material pouring out of Buckingham and Kensington. She alights on the fact that somebody in a paper or a magazine says that um, that Lady Diana isn't really a career-minded kind of woman. So that's all right. She's going to fit very nicely into the royal retinue. And, of course, other sort of very aside kind of cultural references that admittedly are a sort of nostalgia, like when her her fridge breaks down and she says it's making more ice than... Uh, make it, it would make you think it was, it was John Curry, which that's um, right. it just yeah. made me yeah. laugh out loud. What, what's so, again, for the younger generation. Is, I was reading it and I realised no mobile phones, no internet... You know, letters. It, uh, it, yeah, letters. <laughs> and yet, the texture of yeah. life doesn't feel. I mean, you know, you you could more or less publish these now, and a and lot of the a lot of the issues, particularly issues weirdly about men and women and, and women and women, are still are completely relevant. And I just I was bit that I just thought because she's such a good comic writer, but I love this. This is about leaks. A male who can pick out a goodly leak and process it into a Lancashire hot pot may possibly contribute more to the struggle for sexual equality than any amount of ideological jargon. You tell me, Mary, that your Bobby Joe is a truly feminist man because he always says he and she, his and hers, men and women. Hurrah for Bobby Joe. But can he pick out a decent leak at ten paces and make of it something fit to be ladled into mankind's, humankind's, mouth? If so, full marks. If not, hot air. And answer me this one. <coughs> Who cleans the lavatory at Sebastopol Terrace? No, don't fudge it with ifs and buts. Who, Mary? <laughs> and, thought, and, and it's like, actually still, it well, is still the big... That when you're talking about d- domestic life, you know, the, the, I mean, a lot of these things are so... They're still absolutely kind of precise and, 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 and she gets it so... She captures it brilliantly, I And think. what she does brilliantly is also the fact that she has... Uh, you know, this not particularly attentive husband. She has a son who she likens to a stick of celery, a little bit inert. Uh, and uh, she has the baby, who's who's rather kind of delightful and doesn't cause very many problems. Um, and the daughters but, are great. But the, exactly, yeah. it's the women who are really getting on to her. It's yeah. Mary who's mm-hmm. constantly telling her she's not being feminist enough. It's her daughter who she wears a pair of high heels that she's absolutely thrilled. It's the first time she's about, been out of the house for ages and she buys some new shoes. And her daughter essentially gives her a lecture on how she's letting down the whole of womankind. <laughs> and her mother, her appalling mother, who you know, just is constantly on Josh's side and thinks he's been terribly neglected. It's really reminded me of a thing, that thing you were talking about really reminded me a bit of when I worked at, uh, for Waterstones like 20 years ago. Uh, I ran the fiction section at Waterstones in Kensington High Street. And uh, Quite some fiction section. Uh, it was Ooh. great. It was a privilege. And we uh, and so we had within that a women's fiction uh, drop. Of course you did. Okay. And um, uh we had the women's fiction drop, and one day in 1994, um, a female customer came in and said, "Why have you got that women's fiction drop? They should be the women's fiction should be integrated with all the fiction." And I went, "Yeah, actually, yes, yeah, sure. Perhaps you're right. We should do that." Did you and really so, say that, Andrew? Did you say get out? The next day, <laughs> the next day, I reorganised it and I put 
all the viragos and women's press books into fiction. It took all day because you had to rearrange the whole thing, right? The following day, a different female customer said, where's your women's fiction section? I said, oh, it's mixed in. And she went, no, it shouldn't be mixed in. It should be on its own. It's retail, mate, isn't it? You can yeah. never I, asked, I asked the comedian Bridget Christie what, what she would say, and she said, well, the obvious answer is they should be in both sections. <laughs> what, double-stocked? Yeah. yeah. How's that going to work? But the point, the point being, what I like about this book very much is the idea that she can adopt through different characters different points of the feminist argument, right? Yeah. So, I'm not so, sure she entirely adopts Mary's, but she, no. yeah, she knows. Possibly the women's sub-orgasmic therapy group, which <laughs> I, I, I think that. would go a bomb if, if re-founded. I, I love this bit. Well, it's just, I, it, I haven't laughed as much for a long time as it, it, it... By the way, where on earth is Mo and why? I got a card from her last week. It showed a scrubby sort of desert being pecked at by some large sinister black birds. The stamp was obliterated by squiggly marks and all it said in those scratchy red ink capitals Mo uses when she's about to flip her lid was... We know disgracefully little about the Kurds in pan-Arabic sisterhood, <laughs> Mo. Well, as it happens, I do know disgracefully little about the Kurds, and I'll bet they know disgracefully little about me. Do you think she's using some kind of code? All that leaps to mind is a way of double entendres and a, a, is a dreary kind of cheese. <laughs> is, she a, is she a prisoner in a factory farm? Please reveal all in your next, or I shall have to table a question in the house. But I just, I just well, there's a, there's a, there is that thing of, of miss that kind of, the, I mean the Kurds, you know, this is 1982. It's, it's something that, that that whole sense of us being kind of little England and inward looking. Yeah. But, but all of this stuff is being played out, even though it's done in a very amusing and, and light-hearted way in this book. But you, what surprised me is that maybe, I, I think for a lot of the generation who grew up in the 70s, and I would include myself, we thought, actually, yeah, we know women, it's, it's all going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. It's all, you know, we kind of, and this book was, it was a, in a way a kind of a high, I sort of see it almost as a high watermark. Feminism was, was confident enough uh, to be able to m- to, poke, to poke fun at yes. itself, yeah. and yet that, I almost it, I almost read it with a sort of sickening nostalgia, realizing that a lot of this, a lot of what we thought was going to change, hasn't really changed, and that you know when you look at particularly the American election, the horrible uh, the, the trolling on the internet of every significant uh, female figure who is p- prepared to say anything, you suddenly feel oh, actually things haven't really improved. I, I, I'm, I'm just going to counterpoint that with. Uh, on the other hand, on the other, on hand. the other hand, you know there are books being published at the moment and selling in significant quantities by Bridget Christie, who I just mentioned, but also Sarah Pascoe has got a book out now, Caitlin Moran, which deal with these issues and are funny about these issues in a way that um, probably are reaching far more people and I would argue younger people than Jill Tweedy did in that era. I'm just wondering. I've got Bridget's book here. It's called a book I for her. Not that old. I read it in 1982. <laughs> no, you're yeah, you're. Significantly younger. Um, Bridget, in her book, A Book for Her, she says this. After I did my show on feminism, everyone then started calling me Bridget Christie, the feminist comedian. I was asked to write a book about feminism, which was a very good idea of my publishers. 
Especially after Mary Wollstonecraft, Virginia Woolf, Susan B. Anthony, Simone de Beauvoir, Betty Frieden, <laughs> Gloria Steinem, Jermaine Greer, Naomi Wolf, Kat Banyard, Doris Lessing, Margaret Atwood, Natasha Walter, Caroline Criado Perez, Laura Bates, Susan Faludi, Ariel Levy, Bell Hooks, Alice Walker, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Kate Austin, Dora Montefiore, Kate Millett, Shulamith Firestone, Adrienne Rich, Susie Allback, Eve Ensler, and Millie Tant all made such a mess of it. <laughs> I'm a feminist. I hate all men. I even hate Ban Ki-moon. <laughs> it's one thing to try to eradicate female genital mutilation and forced marriage, but Mrs Ban Ki-moon told me she can't remember the last time her husband put the hoover round <laughs> or sprayed his own soiled pants with pre-wash vanish. <laughs> Feminism begins at home, Mr Ban, not at the UN. <laughs> Ban Ki hypocrite, more like. I also learned that feminists hate being complimented, praised, or having our lives improved or enhanced in any way by a man. A feminist would rather be dead than have her life saved by a man. <laughs> Feminism is the sole cause of recession, global warming, terrorism, pandemics, cancelled flights, volcanoes. You can't have hot drinks at work now because of feminism. You can't eat a lobster without safety goggles now because of feminists. You can't even open a door now because of all the feminists. All feminists wear glasses and look like Velma from Scooby-Doo circa 1969, Olive from On the Buses, or Elton John from the gay community, and Princess Di's funeral, etc. Yeah, very good. It's very good. Very, very, very good. funny. Um, why isn't this book in print? Well, Alex? quite. I've done my best. I mean, you know, in a quite half-assed <laughs> yeah, way. No, I'm really but surprised. I think it would be would be uh, would be great back in print, and I would like that to happen. Uh, and I'd like it to happen, you know, for obvious reasons because I think it's a great book. But I think it would bring uh, a moment of exactly as you said, John, a little bit of self-satirising to what is mm. occasionally occasionally a slightly humorless debate or set of debates. Yeah, but. I mean, I, for, for me, I, I always like finding um, writers that I haven't read before who are funny, mm. right? Because there's not that many funny yeah. writers, are there? Well, I don't think so. I don't think, and we always, I've said before on Battlested that I think funny writing is often about rhythm, you know, about where to land a, a word, not just a joke, a word. And she's so good. Yes, uh, Jill she Tweedy, she's so good at this. There's Can a, I read another yeah, yeah, bit? Yeah, yeah, please. Because yeah. it gives the answer to, to, it's the kind of, response to John's earlier reading Dear Mary, thanks for the snap you sent me. In your last letter of you and Mo in Shadours outside Sebastopol Terrace You're quite right. I can't tell which is you and which is Mo But why is my bewilderment merely a predictable bourgeois individualist reaction? Even a duck-billed platymus might become a trifle disorientated if it couldn't pick out its pal in the next burrow from any duck-billed platymus that happened to wander by I know, I know. I wrote that Shadows could have their advantages, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Matthew, do you have a uh, tenuous publishing link? I have got a tenuous publishing link, and it's a very simple one this week, and it's simply to recommend a, a book that I really love by another former Guardian's women's page editor, which is Mafia Women, that Claire Longwig wrote in the late 90s. It came out in 1997. It's a book about the kind of... Uh, she went out to Sicily and interviewed um, women 
that were involved in the mob. Uh, and it's a fantastic, wonderful piece of kind of a portage. I was saying earlier that I thought some of the some of the references were very 80s. That, that there, there, is other, there are other things in here, as Alex was saying, as John was saying, which seem to me you could write now. There's a little bit here about going to the supermarket. There isn't a good fairy about waving her wand and, hey, presto, baked beans and bunches of bananas. There's just me making lists, slogging down to the shops and slogging back again. All they know is they go out, come back, and the cupboard's full. Magic. Probably that's why I came home today from the supermarket with a hot toothbrush. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe in the properties theft stuff. I just have this very deep feeling that the world owes me something, even if it's only one yellow toothbrush medium bristle. What I feel is the supermarket ought to reward me for working so hard on their behalf, and since they don't, I'm forced to reward myself, hence the toothbrush. They pretend they're doing us a favour, having everything self-service, and all the time it's us doing them a favour trekking round their noisy, overcrowded food hangers so we can stick our week's housekeeping in their tills and pay for their plastic bags covered with their advertising. There was this old lady in there today doing it her way, not sticking toothbrushes up her jumper, but quietly awarding herself consoling swigs of whiskey while struggling to buy whiskers for her cat. By the time she arrived at the checkout, that old lady was feeling no pain. (laughs) And the bottle was tucked neatly back on the drinks shelf a little bit empty. I gave her an admiring grin as I passed her. Bottoms up, she said, bless her OAP heart. What supermarkets ought to do, if they had any imagination beyond fleecing you, is give each worn-out trolley pusher a prezi at checkout. A pair of tights, a bag of sweeties, a toothbrush free. It costs them less than shoplifting and cut down on that too. Oh, do you know what that bliss makes me think of? I, I didn't really think about when I was rereading that this blissfully comes before the hideous uh, era of people having to do posh cooking at home. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So when she goes yeah. shopping, she's stocking up and she's telling you she's getting kind of bananas and oranges and she's getting a bit of fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's got to get the spuds and the leeks as we are. Yeah. But it's not, she's not sitting there trying to, you know, make a, a souffle, as she knows, souffles to 270s. Yeah. Make something with quinoa. Yeah. My, my, my favourite line in it is just when she says about them, her and Josh going on holiday to their place in France, i.e. Le Tent, which is just fantastic, fantastic little one line. I mean, I, a, but it's I, full of them. I was, there was a food bit that I really liked as well, which is that um, uh, Ben's departed for school, leaving notes saying, it was not me took the cream off the milk. <laughs> And Jane's departed for college, leaving empty, empty tins of oxtail soup behind her. Can oxtail soup be called a proper breakfast? What is, a, what is an ox? Surely they don't grow in England. The poor creatures are probably shipped from India or somewhere, tails and all, in ghastly freighters, mooing, or whatever oxes do. The baby is down on the floor with the cat eating his whiskers. He's particularly partial to the lamb's heart flavour. And Josh banged the door quite loudly as he went off to the office, saying, all you ever wanted for breakfast was one bowl of sultana bran, and why was there never any, or was that too much to ask of a liberated wife? <laughs> it's just... So, so I want to add at this point as well, just before we come to the end, that this book, although it's not in print, uh, it is uh, widely available from all 1P stockists. Um, it's, well, no, it's good because we, we had a prob- we've had a problem a couple of times now with books that people have um, not been able to get hold of because they're um, very expensive, um, fortunately. Uh, this is seems to be uh, widely available. There isn't an ebook, but there is a Picador edition, and there, there was until recently an edition published by Robson as well. So, you, if you want to read it, you should be able to to pick that up uh, quite easily. 
Um, shall we? Um, shall we bid farewell? Um, yeah, I was. There was just one little other bit that I just thought because it's about Ben, the, the teenage See, boy. Once you when, start, you can't stop. Yeah. And she, when she discovers them, uh, Martha discovers that his girlfriend is thirty. <laughs> she's thirty-eight, and the girlfriend's thirty-six. <laughs> and it's just. There I was, with the birds and bees all planned, ready for Ben's first whisper of romance. A motherly man-to-man chat about responsibilities and courtesy to the opposite sex and always using the necessaries. And now I'm locked in combat with a female pederast. (laughs) It's too much. How am I supposed to mother an innocent babe and a sex-crazed teenage clown all at the same time? Morning spent sticking Heinz chicken dinner in a small mouth, one for mummy, down the little red lane. Evening spent embroiled in a May-to-September saga of mismatched lust. No one woman can bridge such gulfs. And Josh is no use. He coarsened before my eyes when when told and clapped Ben on the back for the first time since he nursed his five times tables <laughs> I love that he coarsened me it's such wow. a beautiful it, it really, he's it's such, such a good word picker yeah. and you're yeah. right you're right rhythm Andy you're quite right it's always it always comes down to just the inflection on a word to make it funny mm. you know obviously ideas yes obviously commitment to a subject yes <laughs> but also the word. And I think it's, I think she's, like we said earlier, I think she's every bit as funny a writer as Sue Townsend. And I, I, I kind of agree. I think this is a classic. It ought to be in print. That seems as good a point as any on which to stop. Thanks to Alex Clark, to Matthew Clayton, to producer Matt Hall. And thanks once again to Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at BacklistedPod, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash BacklistedPod, and on our page on the Unbound site, unbound.co.uk forward slash Backlisted. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Alex. Pleasure. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you. Thank you. You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.